Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of The Witch Wave. I'm popping in at a bit of an unusual time in our schedule because, as some of you may have heard by now, Rachel Pollock passed away last week on April 7th of 2023 at the age of 77. Rachel was so many things, a tarot expert and teacher and author, a sci-fi and speculative fiction writer, the creator of the first transgender superhero, and a transgender goddess herself. I was very blessed to have gotten to meet her and speak with her over the years and to interview her here on The Witch Wave in June of 2020 for my season three season finale. And I thought that the best way to honor her now and to honor her memory is to revisit that conversation during which she was every bit as brilliant and funny and kind and magical as one would hope. She was the kind of woman that I aspire to be because she was so completely and unapologetically herself and lived a life devoted to adventure and curiosity and unbridled creativity and liberatory spirituality. I will miss her as will so many, many, many others around the world whose lives she's touched through her writing, her teaching, and her deep love of visionary divinity and transformational living. May all who knew her and her work find comfort and peace in the days ahead, and may her words continue to make the world a better, freer, and more marvelous place. Rest in power and blessed be to the High Priestess herself, Rachel Pollock. Thank you for your majesty and your magic, Rachel. And now here is the ad-free version of my episode with Rachel Pollock. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Welcome to the Witch Wave. Yes, my friends, it's the season finale. Season three. Hoo-wee! Have we been through a lot since autumn. I want to firstly thank you all for continuing to listen and support the podcast. I hope it has offered you some comfort and entertainment and maybe even some inspiration during these tumultuous times. 
I continued to be inspired by the community that we're building together. And I'm so honored to be going on this magical journey with you all. I also once again want to thank everyone listening for your understanding as I like so many other podcasters have had to scramble these past few months to keep making the show despite the fact that I haven't been able to work out of the studio I was using which means the sound quality is just not as polished this season or at least the second half of the season as I wish it was but we are all doing our best and here hoping things will be back to normal when season four returns in the fall. And if you're worried that you might go through witch wave withdrawal, I just want to remind you that I will still be doing some mini-sodes throughout the summer for Patreon backers. So do consider joining us over at patreon.com slash witchwave for that content and all kinds of other goodies. I also want to thank all of my sponsors and Patreon backers who have kept us afloat and able to keep making the show this season, particularly when I know that many of them have also been going through their own financial challenges. Deep, deep, deep thank you. And of course, a huge thank you to all of my guests this season who have brought so much wisdom and magic to our conversations and who, it must be said, are also dealing with their own tech and sound issues and have still made the time to talk to me despite everything else that's been going on in the world and in their worlds. I am in such awe of each of them and today's guest, the tarot titan and otherworldly writer Rachel Pollock is no exception. By now, many of you are familiar with my phrase, following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. And I have to say that Rachel Pollock and the presence of her work in my life is an excellent example of what I mean by this. Because it was through paying attention to signs and mystic clues that I was made aware of her in the first place. As you know, I'm a massive fan of Neil Gaiman and Sandman comics are a foundational text in my life. And I first encountered Rachel's name a few times in the context of his work when I was a teenager. They collaborated on a tarot deck together for Vertigo Comics in the 1990s, and he would occasionally mention her name in interviews and talk in glowing terms about her writing and magical expertise, tarot-related and otherwise. Fast forward to the year 2009, which was a truly pivotal year for me. I had been working at my day job for a number of years, and after practicing magic privately for most of my life, I was beginning to finally step into my own power and identity as a witch more publicly. This was the year that Observatory, the arts and event space I co-ran with a bunch of other weirdos here in Brooklyn, had just opened. 
I had also curated my first ever art show called Fata Morgana, The New Female Fantasists for Deborah Gallery in Greenpoint, which got a very surprising shout out from Neil Gaiman on Twitter. And I don't think I was even on Twitter at the time, so only heard about it from one of the gallery's visitors. And it was also the year that I did a spell to find a teacher who turned out, as many of you know, if you've heard an earlier episode, to be the green witch, Robin Rose Bennett. To top it all off, it was in May of 2009 when Matt and I went on a weekend getaway to the Hudson Valley. And this trip was marked by so many magical clues and affirmations, including my stumbling upon a beautiful Hecate statue in a shop, which has been on my altar ever since, and also stumbling upon, drumroll please, a listing in a local magazine advertising tarot readings by one Rachel Pollock. Seeing her name in print felt so exciting and so wild to me because I recognized it immediately and had never considered that this woman was someone I could ever meet, let alone that she lived in New York and that I could get a tarot reading from her directly. Long story short, I nervously called the number in the ad, and lo and behold, found myself in her beautiful home that weekend, getting a tarot reading from the master herself. The reading was incredibly meaningful to me, and meeting her was incredibly meaningful to me, because here was someone who made a career out of magical explorations and creations. Fast forward to many years later, when I find myself in the very fortunate position of getting to co-organize the Occult Humanities Conference at NYU, and I invite her to come lecture, and when we're finally able to make schedules align, she does this last year so in 20 what year are we even in now what is time anymore am I right (laughs) so this would have been in 2019 when she lectured at the occult humanities conference and she of course was received like the royal goddess she is and her lecture was mind-blowing just as one would come to expect And now here she is in 2020 on this podcast. And so she went from this sort of mythical being in my life to someone I get to know and work with, and it makes me truly marvel at the twists and swirls of life and all of the signposts that pop up along the way if we just pay attention to them and trust how they make us feel when they arrive. All hail the cosmic breadcrumbs. And so I am beyond honored to share our conversation with you all as it is overflowing with Rachel's masterful magic. But before we get to that, 
first, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches! Linnea writes, Hi Pam, thank you for your podcast. It's a delight. I'm a baby witch and feel overwhelmed with how to begin a practice, of course. However, as I live in a very cold climate, I have a fire going in my wood-burning stove in my living room for at least nine months out of the year, and building a morning fire has become a lovely ritual for me. It feels like a gateway to both my practice and my connection to my ancestors. I know there is plenty out there on candle magic, but how about using a larger fire for daily magic? Do you have any guidance or suggestions? Hi, Linnea. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, first of all, and apologies if not. I'm not sure where you're located, but it is truly amazing to think about you in a cold climate right now because here in New York, it is so hot. And we just celebrated the summer solstice this past weekend here in the Northern Hemisphere, so my mind has been on all things solar and summery. But to answer your question, yes indeed, there is so much fire magic that you can explore. First of all, speaking of the solstices, one of the many ways that a lot of pagan holidays are celebrated is through building a bonfire. The bonfire is a symbol of celebration, but also of cleansing. There are all kinds of rituals wherein people write down things that they want to get rid of or free themselves from and then toss those papers into the flames. I'm also thinking about traditions like burning a Yule log for luck for the new year or even burning an effigy, which is essentially a symbolic representation of something or someone you'd like to rid yourself of. Though please hear me when I say that I am not encouraging anyone to be physically or magically harmed. It's more about removing their negative effects on your life through this symbolic action. And you probably heard Remy meowing in the background with affirmation. But something else that comes to mind in addition to spell work or celebration is to consider keeping a fire lit as an act of devotion. I'm not sure where your ancestors hail from, but there are many traditions throughout the world that revolve around keeping a flame burning or tending to an eternal flame. And I'm trying really hard not to break into the Bengals song right now. But for example, in synagogues, there's one flame, or these days, one electric light that is always kept burning to signify the constant and eternal presence of God. And in ancient Rome, there were the Vestal Virgins, whose job it was to tend the eternal fire of Vesta at her temple. Vesta is the Roman goddess of the hearth and the home, and she is related to the Greek goddess Hestia as well, so they both might be somebody for you to look into. 
Now, I'm not suggesting that you always have to keep your fire lit, as that could be a safety hazard, nor am I suggesting that you need to be a virgin, just to make that clear. But I do love the idea of your home fires signifying a connection to spirit. That can mean that whenever you light the flames, you give an invocation of thanks, or whenever you need it, you ask for protection or assistance from a fire deity or from spirit in general. But the point is, this fire of yours can be a holy fire, and it sounds like it already is for you. It can be a signifier, forgive the pun, which symbolizes your connection and your home's connection to the divine. You can throw offerings in there, safely mind you, of herbs and flowers when you feel called to, or you can simply allow yourself to feel more strong and powerful and bright in your own being whenever you tend to your flames. And if you need to put the fire out or it goes out on its own, absolutely no problem. Just like with candle magic, as long as you reset your intention every time you light it, you're good to go. Just be safe, be sincere, and bewitch yourself and your home with glowing magic that lights you up from within. Now on to my guest. Rachel Pollock is a legend. She is perhaps best known as one of the world's foremost tarot experts, having written such classics as 78 Degrees of Wisdom and The New Tarot Handbook. She's also the creator of The Shining Tribe Tarot and the co-creator with Robert Place of The Burning Serpent Oracle and The Raziel Deck. But tarot is just the tip of the iceberg, as Rachel is the author of 43 books of fiction and nonfiction, many of them in the speculative or sci-fi genres, including Unquenchable Fire, which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and Godmother Night, which won the World Fantasy Award. She is also an accomplished comic book writer and pioneer, and during her run for DC Comics' Doom Patrol in the 1990s, she introduced one of the world's first transgender superheroes, and she's now considered by many to be a transgender superhero herself. Rachel's work has been translated into 16 languages, and she has taught and lectured on tarot, creative writing, gender, and innumerable other topics in the U.S., Canada, Europe, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and China. And as I mentioned already, she graced me with the honor of lecturing last year at the Occult Humanities Conference at NYU that I co-organized biennially. And until her retirement, she was a senior faculty member of Goddard College's MFA in Writing program. Rachel's most recent book is The Beatrix Gates, 
a volume which collects several of her most visionary stories, as well as a brand new essay on magic and transgender living. This year, it was nominated for a Lambda Award. One can see why poet Cat Fitzpatrick called Rachel, quote, a living national treasure. Rachel joined me from her home in the Hudson Valley, New York, via Zoom. Rachel Pollock, welcome to the Witch Wave. Thank you. I am absolutely overjoyed to have you, Rachel. And as I said to you off mic, by now people will have already heard a very long, juicy introduction to all your work. (laughs) But I wanted to actually share how I first got introduced to your work, which is sort of a hybrid of a couple of the spheres you work in. And that is when I was a teenager, I was a big Sandman comics person. I still am. And I fell in love with the Vertigo tarot deck. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So for listeners who don't know what that is, Vertigo Comics was the gothy speculative fiction arm of DC Comics. And they put out a deck where each card was a different character from the different Vertigo series. And you worked on that, Rachel. And Mm -hmm. so... I wondered, as someone who is a comics writer yourself and a tarot scholar and tarot creator, was that a joyful project for you to get to hybridize these different parts of your fascinations and passions? It was a lot of fun to do, and particularly since the way we did it, we had Vertigo's editor-in-chief, Karen Berger, and then the woman who came up with the idea originally that we should do this, you know, and Neil Gaiman writer of Sandman and me, and we got together in a hotel in Manhattan for a weekend in which we kind of brainstormed who the characters would be, and that was so much fun. Plus, we were working with Dave McKean, who's just a brilliant, brilliant artist. He and Neil Gaiman came up together. They, Gaiman's first work was with Dave, you know? Sure. Dave McKean did all of the Sandman covers, as I recall. Yeah. Really beautiful yeah. artwork. We knew it was a great artist we were working with. And it was just lots of fun to think about this and discuss who would be what characters and what scenes we would do. And then I advised Dave on the meanings of the cards, which he knew somewhat anyway. And then I gave him input on what the minor arcana suits would be, but he actually was kind of has his own ideas already <laughs> because he knew some tarot somewhat and quite a bit actually. And so those were quite wonderful too. And those were all his. I just did the commentary when we did the book together. And it was a big hit. You know, we did a limited edition and it sold immediately, sold out. And then a second one, that sold out. And I think there was a third one that was not limited, but it did quite well, you know, over time. And that was kind of nice. And I still hear from people sometimes, and that's their favorite deck or even their only deck that they use. How fabulous. Yeah. And it got me wondering, you know, I understand that the deck originally came out in 1995, and you had already been writing Doom Patrol in the early 90s at that point. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I was still writing it at that point. Oh, terrific, terrific. And you were, I understand, already deeply involved, of course, in writing about tarot and studying tarot Mm -hmm. and had tarot books under your belt. 
So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the relationship between tarot and comics, because I see a lot of similarities there. Absolutely. You know, what first got me into tarot was when somebody did a reading for me in 1970, around April 1970. And my first reaction to it was, I have to have this. And it reminded me of comic books in the best way, because you had a scene. This is the writer deck, so action scenes in every card. You had a scene of people doing things that was often mysterious. You know, there was no explanation. And then you had this book, it was Eden Gray at the time. And this book pretended to explain what the card meant. And it did, but it also was more mysterious almost than the card. You know, Do you remember what Eden Gray's book was called? Okay, she did three of them. I'm not sure which one it was. I mean, mm-hmm. What I have these days around is Mastering the Tower, which was her most explicit book, mm-hmm. the most developed. But, you know, I remember like the Six of Swords. And it was very little on it, you know, this explanation. And it's just so mysterious and so wonderfully suggestive of a story. And it just reminded me of comics, which at the time I was really in love with. In fact, it was quite funny because at one point I was teaching at a college, State University of New York, and I gave a talk at one point to mostly students, a couple of friends on the faculty. Someone asked me how I got into teaching, you know? Mm. So I said, I was working at a job I didn't like, and I was really hoping to break into writing comic books, but that didn't get me anywhere. They were so excited to hear that one of their teachers got the job because she couldn't get into comic books. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> just, they were so thrilled at this notion, you know? <laughs> anyway, so I always felt there was a strong kinship. I have trouble with traditional decks only have symbols on the cards. Mm. Like the four swords is four swords, you know, on the page. Especially if there's no particular individualist pattern to the deck. So the four swords is the same as the two of swords, but two more. Mm. And the same as six of swords, but two less. Yep. Too fewer, you know. But in the writer deck, they're always suggestive of action. And so to me, it was like a comic book narrative. And when you did a reading, maybe you'd have the four swords. Before it, you might have the five of swords. And after it, you might have the ten of cups. So you have a story. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this terrible disaster happens. There's a battle. People lose badly. And then they have to leave. And they're depressed, but then they're taking their troubles with them. And then they come to a happy place. Mm. So you already have a story there, you know, and that story can apply to people's lives. And so to me, there's always been that kind of connection. Absolutely. And I was thinking about also the combination of words and symbols and what a magic combination that is, you know, language and imagery and comic books obviously braid those two together really impactfully yeah. but i also love how tarot decks do have the titles or many of the decks do have the titles yeah. or the words and together yeah. there seems to be this interesting alchemy yes it's true it's first of all in the major arcana you have these very mysterious titles you know the hierophant the high priestess and the hangman, things like that. But then you also have the numbers. So my only complaint about most tarot decks, almost all tarot decks, is the Roman numerals. Mm. Roman numerals are, to me, empty. They don't have meaning. Mm. Whereas Arabic numerals have tremendous meaning. Number 12 is a one and a two. Number 21 is a two and a one. Mm-hmm. The one is the magician, the two is the high priestess, and so on. You have to forget to get three, the empress. So Roman numerals can't do anything like that. Mm. To me, the numbers always have to be 
you know, Arabic numerals, which I did in the Shining Tribe deck. I'm so glad you brought up the Shining Tribe deck because this is the deck that you have not only done all the writing for, but all of the illustration for as well. Yes, yeah. I know you have a few other decks out that you have collaborated with people yeah. to create, but the Shining Tribe is 100% yours. And I would love to hear about how that deck came to be. It's very interesting, you know, because at a certain point, I decided that, A, you worked with the tower for quite a long time. And so it seemed like I was ready to take a new step, you know? And then B, this is like the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. There were lots of decks coming out, new decks. I did a whole book called The New Tarot, which I could not do anymore because back then it was possible to do a book with about 30 different decks in it and cover the field. Mm -hmm. And now there's hundreds, if not thousands of new decks. Sure. I mean, so that was my impetus. And at the same time, I was deeply involved in goddess work and prehistoric religion and the origins of religion from my book, The Body of the Goddess. Mm -hmm. So I was deeply involved in shamanic kind of things and tribal things and prehistoric things, especially doing a lot of traveling. So those were the influences. So I decided I wanted to do a deck with those kinds of themes and images, the things I love. And so my idea was I would design it and find an artist to do it, you know? So what I was doing was sketching out my ideas in simple, pretty basic cartoon kind of images. So I figured that then I would show these to an artist, you know, and the artist would then take over. So I found one woman, I was living in Amsterdam at the time, and she was also an expatriate. And she did two or three just stunning pictures, incredibly beautiful pictures. But then she decided it was too much work. Mm. So she bat out. And I tried a couple of people, one of which was David Keene, actually, who was interested. But because they were artists, they didn't want to just do what I told them to do. They wanted to do their pictures. And for instance, Dave, because all my pictures were ancient, right? Dave thought it'd be cool to throw in modern elements. So he would have one of the shaman kind of figure wearing a wristwatch. Yeah. And, you know, so I got that that was how he wanted to do it, but it wasn't what I wanted, you know? And then meanwhile, I had become friends with Nikki DeSantefile, you know, she oh, was. yes. Incredible artist, you know? Incredible artist. She yeah. did, I forget the name, but that Garden of Tarot yeah, Sculpture. Garavicchio, yeah, the, the Tarot Sculpture Garden. Absolutely amazing. In Italy, correct? Yeah. That's how I got to know her because she had consulted my books and wrote to me and said, would you like to come to Italy as my guest and help me talk about these pictures? Maybe do a reading about it. And so, of course, I said, yes, it was a very exciting thing to do. This is very funny, actually. I had a friend at the time. Um, she's died since, unfortunately. German Jewish woman who lived most of her life in Holland. And, and she was an art maven. You know, she was someone who knew art really, really well, was very sophisticated and somewhat snobbish in her tastes about mm -hmm. it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she got a computer, didn't work very well, was beautifully designed. <laughs> That's how she made her choice. But anyway, so we were walking in the street one day, and the guy just got this letter from Nikki, and I said, who, Nikki DeSantis follows? She said, oh, of course. She's one of the great artists. I said, yeah, it seems she's a fan of mine. <laughs> and I said this deliberately, of course, you know, Pam, and she said, Nikki Zanfa is a fan of yours? <laughs> anyway, so I got to know Nikki. And she was in Paris and we met there. I actually I think I went there to see her. She wanted a reading. And I told her my dilemma and I showed her my little cartoony sketches. She said, Oh, but you must do it yourself. I figured, well, if one of the world's great artists is, I should do it myself, and I have to do it myself, you know? Hell so yeah. So I started taking the art more seriously and redoing it and being more careful and doing several sketches. And I'm pretty pleased with how it came out. Oh, that's such a fabulous story. So Nikki DeSantis had a big influence on it. 
Wow, what an endorsement. There yeah. was supposed to be a retrospective of her work, actually, here in I New know. York, which, of course, got delayed with everything that's going on. I know, but yeah. I'm hoping that some of her tarot work will be there, too. The woman who is, who is curating the Nikki Sanfal retrospective mm-hmm. had a reading with me, I think, about how to do it or something like that. Mm. And she said that actually it was going to feature the sculpture gardens. I hope so. Oh, how fabulous. I hope, really hope it happens. I'd be so excited to go to that, you know. Oh, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. If you come here, I have a few photos on the wall that I took of some of the statues. Oh, I can't wait to. Now, Rachel, you probably don't remember this, but I certainly do. My first ever professional tarot reading was from you. Oh, really? Oh, in wow, your home. Uh huh. And you did the reading with your deck, the Shining Tribe uh-huh. Tarot. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I just could not believe I was meeting you. I mean, I was both there as a fangirl, though I tried to keep my cool. And also because I really needed some guidance and what a gift it was to get a reading from you, Rachel. And I hope I'll get to have that opportunity again someday. Oh, sure. I'm sure. Yeah, we could do it sometime for sure. How fabulous. Now, do you do readings for yourself? Do you use tarot when you are writing? What's your relationship? like one-on-one with tarot these days? Well, I do read myself quite often on all kinds of things. I don't do very predictive readings that often. I do readings of guidance a lot and kind of spiritual, psychological, and even in a certain sense, magical guidance, mm. you know, to see what the spirits are saying to me. Also, I'm just out of curiosity sometimes. If I have an issue, mm. I'll do readings sometimes if I'm stuck in a story. Mm-hmm. I do read just to see what's for the day. And sometimes the day reading will end up being really, really significant at some point in the day. And I'll have forgotten it. And then it comes back to me mm. when I really need it. So I do readings for myself a lot, actually. I love hearing that because I've spoken to a number of tarot writers and experts and creators who tend to find themselves so burnt out from doing readings for other people really? that they don't huh. do it for themselves anymore. So Interesting, yeah. I'm really delighted to hear that it's still a tool you're working with actively. Well, you know, there used to be superstition. You can't read for yourself. Mm. And there was this sort of psychological version, which is, you know, you find it hard to be objective. I would find at first I would just jump to conclusions. I wouldn't do the work of figuring it out. But then, you know, over time, I felt I could get more into it than that. And, and of course, Mary Greer did a whole book about that called Tarot for Yourself, her first book. Mm, I didn't know about that. To challenge that idea, you know. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of different theories about tarot. I've heard that one that you're not supposed to charge money to read, oh, which God, I think ridiculous. is so ridiculous. Well, it's kind of an interesting, complicated thing, actually, because to some extent, that can be a scam. Mm-hmm. So some of these storefront tarot readers, if they charge money, they would never know exactly how much they can get from somebody. So instead, they just say, oh, you pay whatever feels right to you. Mm. So they sort of influence the mark to pay much more than if they put a sign up. You know, <sighs> It's just a bizarre idea. I mean, I've actually had people ask for a reading and be angry that I wanted to ask for money. The witch in the village never asked for money and the shaman didn't ask for money. And I said, yeah, and they were given a house to live in and all their food. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. There has to be some exchange. I mean, really, it was just ridiculous, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Well, on that note, we're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Rachel Pollock. So Rachel, we were talking about tarot and comic books earlier, and I just want to give you all of the props. Not that you need them from me, but I think a lot of my listeners might not realize that you wrote arguably the first transgender superhero via Doom Patrol. Mm -hmm. And this was a character named Kate Godwin, also occasionally known as Coagula. (laughs) And I was revisiting the issues that you wrote where you first introduced this character. And I was so delighted by all of the occult symbolism that you kind of sneak in there. I mean, her power is that she can say solve and that will dissolve things or coagula and that will yeah. coagulate things. Those and are the hands, right? The left hand dissolved, the right hand coagulated. Exactly, exactly. No, yeah. All of the kind of occult nerds who listen to this podcast will recognize, you know, the symbol of Baphomet or the symbol of the magician in the tarot where yeah. the left hand is down, the right hand is up. And I know Baphomet has Salve at Coagula written on their body. Please, please share with us how did Kate Godwin come to be? There wasn't the reason I wanted to do Patrol at all was because I so admired what the previous writer, Grant Morrison, had done. Mm-hmm. And he moved things in a kind of a, a cult direction, kind of. Not totally, but significantly, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so one of his characters was, I can't remember exactly if he was an alchemist. I think he was, that character. Oh, the character, are you talking about Rebus? Yeah. So when I was thinking of having my character and what her powers would be, I decided that she'd been a prostitute that had sex with Rebus. And so it gained alchemical powers. At the time, I was active in transgender circles. Mm-hmm. And I told one of my friends there, this group I was in, that I was doing a comic book. Superhero. She said, oh, she said, can you make me a character? I've always wanted to be a superhero. So I wanted to do her, you know. And so her name was Goodwin, Chelsea Goodwin. So I did the name Godwin, which is a, a reference to Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Godwin. Sure, sure. Vindication of the Rights of Women. Yep. Mary Shelley's mother. But anyway, so that was the name right there. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, and the Kate was for Kate Bornstein. It was a now pretty much legendary transgender activist. Sure. But then I was thinking, well, what should her powers be? What should her life be? And at that time, this is kind of funny, career opportunities for transgender women were pretty limited at that time. Mm -hmm. And there were two options to a large extent divided by class. So if you were poor, you ended up as a prostitute a lot of time, you know? And if you were middle class, you became a computer programmer or or, a software engineer, actually, you know? Mm -hmm. I was at a gathering one time, and there was this woman there, and I asked her what kind of work she is. She said, well, actually, I'm an engineer. I said, oh, a software engineer? I said, how did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, okay, so those are going to be the two professions that Kate had, my character. She was a prostitute who worked with computers. (laughs) Oh so, so these are the kind of things that developed into who the character was, you know? Mm-hmm. But she also became a kind of spokesperson for the idea of accepting yourself mm-hmm. and having to fight for not the world to accept you, but to accept yourself and accept your power. And because she did that and because she was that kind of character, she became a solely as a big influence on a lot of young trans people. I sort of assumed the work I did was forgotten because it was back in the 90s, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was invited to be a keynote speaker at a transgender literary conference, which was really thrilling. 
And I was really surprised. Well, how do they remember me? I haven't written any stuff on that subject in years, you know? Mm -hmm. And I get there, it turns out I was a hero because I'd written Doom Patrol. Of course. And there's a whole generation of young, out, trans women cartoonists who revered that. You know, it meant so much to them in their lives, you know? This is incredibly thrilling to me, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Not just know that my work survived, but that it really has helped people. Mm-hmm. You know, the tarot writing has done that too. And I think I wrote the new introduction to the new edition of Theory Degrees of Wisdom. I will occasionally hear from people who tell me that the tarot in my book saved their lives. Yeah. And they mean it literally. Yes. Saved them from going downhill with alcoholism, saved them from suicide. Mm-hmm. But then I've also heard from people saying Doom Patrol saved their lives. Yeah. One person in particular said it kept her from killing herself. Yeah. Because she saw someone like her in a comic as a hero. Exactly. I thought there was hope, you know? That was mm-hmm. such an incredible letter, you know? Oh, I love that, right? You know, we had a letters column back in those days. Mm-hmm. And so this letter came in. I would get all the letters every month. And I don't think anyone read them before me. So I was the first person to read this astonishing letter, you know? And I was so moved by it. And I went to D.C. offices, who's in New York City, and I went up to a couple of people I knew, my editor and a woman who was in charge of publicity, you know, and I just handed it to them to look at. And they were just stunned, you know? Yeah. She just couldn't speak. She started crying. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, back then, still to some extent, but definitely that comics were a kind of reviled field. Sure. And so to see that this could have an effect, a comic book could have this kind of effect on a person. Oh, yeah. It's so powerful, you know? Absolutely. I mean, comics really helped point me in the direction of the fact that being interested in magic was valid, like a really valid, vital thing to love and not just silly, but that it was this whole corpus of knowledge and empowerment and beauty that we all have access to. So I can only imagine what a transgender reader would have felt like seeing themselves through your work, Rachel. That's amazing. Yeah, it was really a wonderful experience to do that. There are still some people that assume that the comic book part of my writing was the most commercial part, the part I just did to knock things off to make some bucks, you know? Sure. But to me, Doom Patrol is one of the absolute highlights of the work I've done in my life, you know? Oh, yeah. I thought we did really good stories and said some powerful things mm-hmm. and had a good time. Mm-hmm. And some of the other stuff, people, Doom Patrol was, was the real major thing I did in comics. And, and now I'm doing some comics work again, which I'm really delighted to be doing. Tell me about that. I've done a couple of short pieces. Now I'm doing an interesting series. I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say about it. It's with an editor who kind of brought me back in the comics, started giving me assignments and started making connections for me. Mm-hmm. He wanted to work with me, and we were doing this great story together, which I'm really excited about. You know? Oh, that's so great. Well, as soon as you're ready to announce it, please yeah. let me know, because I can't wait to see that. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit from comics to your prose writing, sure, which is so exquisite. I suppose one could describe you as a science fiction or speculative writer, though I see you as spanning so many different genres. Thank you. There's a book that actually came out recently, which is such a jewel. Mm. This is the book, The Beatrix Gates. Mm -hmm. Actually, my copy was gifted to me from our mutual friend, Susan Eber. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. She's so wonderful. <laughs> oh, she is a goddess. She is she a really living is. goddess. And this book 
touched me so much, Rachel. I know it's a collection of a few different stories that you had written previously that are being reprinted, as well as a brand new story that you wrote, and then an interview with you, and this incredible essay. I think speaking of transgender issues, the titular story of this book, The Beatrix Gates, I wish I could assign this to every human being so they could. <laughs> Honestly, wow, I'm seriously, Rachel, as I was reading it, I kept stopping and reading passages out loud to my husband oh, wow. because it was so beautiful well, thank and you so, so much. moving. Wow. And it really is this gorgeous allegory, I think, about gender and about the self. And I don't want to give too much away, but I'd love for you to speak about that story in as much detail as you feel compelled to today and and where that story came from and and what it means to you and and to other readers. Oh, if I often remember the origins of stories, I'm quite sure about this one. It has two levels, that story. And one of the levels, the title level, was the story within a story. And uh, to be honest, I'm not that wild about that part because that looks back too much to the oppressive past. Mm. And I'm assuming today, I think I would have found another way to make some of those same statements without conjuring up the awful times in which people felt so closed in, you know? Mm -hmm. It's also someone's name, by the way. Mm. The word Beatrix, first of all, is Dante's guide in paradise, you know? But also it means happiness. Beatrice in, in Italian, apparently. And then the idea that she is the owner or guardian of a gateway to other dimensions. I don't know if it, that came to me first or if B's name came to me and that made me think of this. But I asked her if she would be willing to let me use her name in the story. She said, that would be great. You know, It just did not win the Lambda Award for transgender fiction. Mm. Another book won. But, but it would have been fun if I could announce that, you know, B Gates is to my friends who know B, that B Gates' name just won the Lambda <laughs> He has actually won a Lambda Award for her own work, for her poetry. You oh, know? excellent. It would have excellent. been fun if I named no one. Absolutely. You have a lot of awards, Rachel, I will say, but oh, it would have been wonderful to add another one. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I didn't expect to win because there's nothing really great stuff that was nominated. So I didn't expect to win, but the old line is an honor to be nominated. It's really true. It really is an honor to be nominated. But the other part of the story was the future part and also the past. Because in the future part, the character who's a kind of fantasy version of me in the future, mm-hmm. looks back to the time when I was younger mm-hmm. and into the 90s, primarily. Well, more 70s, actually, you know, somewhat 90s. And actually includes a reference to Doom Patrol at the very end of it. Mm. So that letter, in fact, that, that we got that time. Mm-hmm. So that was, in some senses, the part that I still find most compelling. Mm-hmm. Because what I did was I wanted to envision a future in which... Transgender people are not simply accepted, but are seen as really vital. Yes. And are actually the people who have sort of freedom to explore certain things that most people can't. Mm. Nanomachines and body modification, mm-hmm. and what I call nanotransformo. So I imagine this world in which nanomachines have had this power to completely transform people, you know, not just to repair disease or you know, stuff like it'll make you smarter, but to really transform your very essence and things like this. And in this imagined nano-paradiso, as I called it, transgender people were the only people who couldn't really make this work. Mm-hmm. And the reason was transgender people, as I say in the story, were the ones who were willing to be completely destroyed, reworked, 
mm-hmm. and not just modify the past, but hang on to it, but to completely let it go. And so it was just fun to imagine this future in which, you know, the elite of society were all transgendered people and, and parents wishing their children could be transgender so they, <laughs> they could become important and rich and stuff like this. Sure. But then it became very surreal and I think visionary. Oh, yes. So the narrator of that part was kind of a fantasy version of me having crossed the Rubicon into this other world. Yes, and this character is 108 years old. Yeah, yeah. And as we know, 108 is a very holy number. Exactly, a magical holy number. So her lover asked her, what was it like in the old days? So she said, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'll just tell you a story. And it's a fairy tale. And the fairy tale is about oppression and about how people had to like transform in secret and all the struggle they face. And it was just this kind of allegory in which it was not about gender, it was about the world's divided into people who are red and were green. And if you were born green, that's your destiny. You have to be strictly green. You only eat green food, wear green clothes, only have green friends, <laughs> and yeah. only marry green people and so on. And so my character was someone who feels secretly that she's red. You know, and she suffers a lot from this, but finally she hears about this place where you can go be transformed. She does it, and, and then she becomes a secret activist to help people get to that place. Mm-hmm. They call it a travel agent. And then at the end, she goes back and she discovers the Beatrix Gates. And this is a big spoiler. So if for anyone who might not want to hear the end of the story, we'll just let them know you're about to talk about it. Well, I'll tell it very obliquely. Yes. I'll say that when she first goes through the process of chain and becomes red, she sees this mysterious woman in this mysterious place. Mm-hmm. And she feels tempted by it, but she backs away because she wants to enjoy her new life, you know? And then at the end of the story, she goes back to it. Mm-hmm. But it represents what lies beyond personal change. Mm. And what personal change, if you really accept the fact that you've totally transformed everything that you were given by society and by your birth, that, that opens you to go beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that sort of was the theme. It yes. opens you to have a kind of visionary kind of existence. And to transcend binary and become... Yeah this integrated i'm trying not to give too much away now myself mm-hmm. but but I, I was really really moved i really can't put into words how beautiful thank you yeah i just love this story rachel thank you to me part of the power right next story was the autobiographical ones which i call an old story mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. some of the part old story are mythological stories about transgender gods and goddesses, you know, Mm -hmm. but also the things that happened to me and to people I knew in the 70s through the 90s. Sure. And those are powerful to write about. I've always shied away from autobiography because transgender autobiography is a genre I really don't like at all. It's it's self-serving. It's pitying. It's asking for acceptance. You know, it's asking for the straight world to accept you. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like you have to get beyond it. You have to say, whatever you are, doesn't matter trans any issue at all. Mm-hmm. Which are at odds with society, including being a witch or anything outside society, is a trap to ask the world to accept you or to write about yourself, assuming your audience is the straight world, as I call it. Mm-hmm. You have to write to your own people. So the work you write is about being a witch is so wonderful because it's to witches. It's not to the outside world to say, oh, please accept us. We're not bad. We're okay. We're good. You know, mm-hmm. Please don't be nasty to us. Mm-hmm. So this was a way of writing things that were powerful experiences. And writing them very much in the framework of this magical kind of story, writing about the power of having that kind of life history. Yeah. 
So when did you start writing more autobiographically? Did that feel liberating? Was that intimidating? Well, I've always shied away, as I say, from writing anything that was really officially autobiography. I would sometimes do something, like I did a book called The Secret Woman, which is a mystery, but at the, those of you who say a transsexual detective, mm-hmm. which I recently reread and was really happy with it. I'm really sure how I feel about it. I really like the character. And so in that, I use some of my own life experiences, but more of, of my friends and idea of what this character might be. Mm-hmm. So I've never really felt the desire to write about my life much. Mm-hmm. In Beatrice Gates, there's an essay, which is more about my life than other things. Yes. But in general, I've shied away from writing about my own life much. It's, it doesn't interest me. Yeah, I understand that. It's not just that I don't like the genre. It's also that it doesn't interest me. <laughs> you know, I'm interested in stories and possibilities and magical transformations and journeys. Mm-hmm. I don't care that much to tell my stories about, you know, what happened to me when I was younger, yep. unless it has a powerful kind of connection to something. I can relate to that so much. First of all, thank you for the kind words you said about my work. When I was working on my book, Waking the Witch, I put some autobiographical material in there Mm -hmm. because I wanted to personalize it and to make some points. And yet, you know, I really resisted doing it because I was like, I know all about myself. Like, this isn't that (laughs) interesting to me. Yeah, exactly. And yet people, and I imagine this happens for you, people have given me feedback that those are some of their favorite parts because it allowed them to see themselves in my story and vice versa. And so when I read the essay, the autobiographical essay that you wrote called Trans Central Station, I was so moved. And I'm so glad you wrote this very Thank autobiographical yeah. essay, even if it's not one of your favorites. Oh, no, I actually was very happy with it. Oh, good, good, good. Because like I said, it wasn't that self-serving kind of thing. I was like, well, you know, please accept me. And here's all I had to suffer. And here's how, why I'm happy now. So please accept me. That's what I would never have done. But yeah. If you'll indulge me, I'd love to read a passage from that essay. Can I just say something about that? Oh, please. I so much like that you were reading something you've chosen than asking me to read something, I would, <laughs> you know? And I think that's more meaningful. There's, you know, there's that connection between us. Good, good. I'm so glad. Because I know it's a little weird having someone read your work to you. You're like, I know, I wrote this. But I want readers to hear these words. This, again, is from your essay, Trans Central Station, in the book, The Beatrix Gates. You write, No, I was not trapped in the wrong body. I was trapped in the wrong universe. In order to become who I was, I had to break the world open. I had to embrace a kind of science fiction life, or maybe a magical life, by which I mean the ability to experience the world and connections and myself in ways that did not fit the standard model of reality. And that passage really brings tears to my eyes, Rachel, because even though you and I have very different lived experiences and you're, you know, speaking about being a transgender woman, I relate to those words in my own life in terms of, and I know it's not the same. Please understand. No, no, I understand totally. No problem. Okay. I want to be very respectful of the history of transgender people and 
the struggle and all of the things that one has had to overcome. And yet I do relate to this feeling of how magic and accepting oneself can allow oneself to be happier and feel as though we belong and we have Mm -hmm. the power to also co-create reality with spirit. And I don't know, I just find it so moving, Rachel, that entire essay just... Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Really, thank you. And you speak in that essay about language Mm -hmm. and how... Even the language that you came up in the 70s and 80s using, a lot of those terms have now fallen out of fashion, and there are new terms Mm -hmm. that have come. And of course, this will keep evolving in terms of how we're talking about gender. Can you talk a little bit about language and the magic of language and how language helped you open up that world or recreate the world for yourself? It's an interesting question. It's, it's a complicated one. Mm-hmm. To me, I think I came to changing language possibly through stories, through like mythological stories and spiritual practices that I researched and found out about in which trans people were kind of powerful and central figures, mm-hmm. like shamanism and things like this. Sure. So that showed me there was a different kind of reality the spiritual reality that was not oppressive. And then I was thinking about language. And one of the big breakthroughs was I was in this group in New York City in the early 90s. And, and one thing we talked about sometimes was language. In particular, how do you refer to women usually at that time who were not transsexual compared to women who were transsexual? And the usual terms were real woman, genuine woman, genetic girl, genuine girl. And, you know, a lot of us got that this was really, not just insulting, but it was a way of just denying your own validity. Because mm-hmm. if you're genuine, then you're not. Yeah. Then you're an imitation, you know? So if you're speaking or writing a sentence, in which it's important to distinguish between a woman who is transgender or transsexual then, and one is not, then the simple way to say the other person is not transsexual, mm-hmm. rather than genuine or born or, you know. So I started using that term. A couple other people did. And it was interesting to see the reaction from some of the people who would see themselves as in that category. They were really offended. Mm-hmm. And it was clear they were offended because I was taking away their privilege of being real. Yeah. Whereas I was someone who was pleading to be let into the club. Yeah. And it was up to them to accept me or reject me. So they would come up with these objections, which were kind of bizarre. They would claim I was saying that, you know, only I was important and they were not. It was strange. And I was saying, look, I said, it's a grammatical thing. The only reason we're having this discussion at all to make the distinction of these terms is in a sentence where distinction matters. Yeah. It's not like I constantly see this is your category in life. Instead, in that sentence, it matters. Mm-hmm. And the simplest way to say it is to say the person who is the person who isn't. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's very liberating to trans people because they stopped seeing themselves as imitations, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that phrase, the real thing, became very powerful. I'm the real thing. Yes, yes. And I use that in my book, actually, Secret Woman. Mm. When the character finally comes into acceptance of herself, she also accepts how powerful it makes her. Yes. To not be afraid and to not hope that people will be nicer. So one point is that I'm the real thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a really strong statement that she makes, you know? Uh. In recent years, in the modern movement, they looked at the subject fresh. What do you call people? 
if you have to make that distinction, what term do you use? And they came up with cisgender, which I'm not wild about because it's an artificial term. Mm-hmm. And one person said that they looked at the idea of saying non-transgender. Mm-hmm. I think they said that somehow it made transgender seem like this odd thing on the side. Mm. And that is real. Mm-hmm. And so then the real people, the ones who were not, you know, that's what people have accepted. So, you know. Exactly. And I imagine in 25 years, there will be other words, don't you think? Yeah. Language always changes, which is great. Exactly. Exactly. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Rachel Pollack. So Rachel, when I was reading some of your writing, you highlighted this time in your life where lots of revelations were happening for you. And I think that we're currently in a time when lots of revelations are coming to lots of people. It it feels like there are these flashpoints in our personal timelines as well as the collective timeline. So I wanted to dive into some of those ideas with you. You talk about how in 1970 to 1971, suddenly your life changes and a, a lot of new things are revealed to you. Can you talk about that time period? Well, actually, I was thinking about it for some reason this morning. It really is actually pretty much all tightly in the spring of 1971. Mm. Kind of kind of amazing. Mm. First 1970, so in a year or so. So in that time period, so I came out as transgendered and a lesbian. And I also sold my first professional short story called Pandora's Bust. That's awesome. And I also discovered the tarot. As I say, the tarot discovered me. And that was actually the first. That was April 1970. Mm. So this is like three very major things in my life. Mm -hmm. Tarot cards, being trans and lesbian, and being a professional writer all at the same time. Mm -hmm. To me, it's a very magical thing that all those things converge at that moment. Yes. And then, of course, each of them took years to develop. But still, that, that was the moment in which everything opened up for me. Yeah. These kinds of things are mysteries, how that happens. Mysteries, but not accidents. It's hard to explain. And of course, as I each of them developed, I began to see how much magic was in my life over time. Mm-hmm. And then the tower, of course, developed in powerful ways. Yeah, yeah. Just about exactly a year later, 70 Degrees of Wisdom was published. Wow. Volume 1, 1980. Mm-hmm. Also my first novel. So that was the fiction part at the same time, too. Mm-hmm. called Golden Vanity. Golden Vanity, I like to joke, kind of vanished without a trace. Yeah. In fact, my first three books were all described as my first novel by critics. <laughs> <laughs> the first two got so little attention. But anyway, but the tarot, of course, you know, that major piece of wisdom has been in print ever since. Yes. From 1980s, the present is now in its third edition. It's sold all over the world and so on. Oh, so yeah. that's kind of an amazing thing. I've been very thrilled at what's happened with my fiction writing and I love doing it. It's, my, it's still my first love, I would say. I also predict, Rachel, that your writing is for the ages. I'm talking about your fiction writing, Thank you. particularly. Yeah. I wrote down a quote from you. You write, 
Sometimes the old gods don't die. They just keep busy until humanity catches up with them. <laughs> and I feel like humanity is catching up with you. And oh, you. Wow, how lucky wonderful. for us and for people who can now go back and dive into your immense corpus of writing. And, of course, you're generating new stories all the time. So. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You know, it's interesting. I just say something about that. So yeah. for a long time, it used to be that the people who knew my tarot books knew nothing about my fiction and vice versa to a large extent, you know? Mm-hmm. And just recently, it started to change. I started to hear from people who were devotees of my fiction and also read my tarot and vice yes. versa. So that's been kind of an interesting development, just starting to be that crossover between the two things I do and the comics also. Absolutely. I think you've been leading this multi-stranded, integrated life and doing this alchemy with yourself of braiding together all these different parts of yourself. And sometimes it takes other people a while to catch up to that. But I think it's happening. And and hopefully this conversation will help a little bit in that direction. Yeah, well, it's just certainly giving a great boost to my work, I have to say. So thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, please. This is totally my honor. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, a wise, insightful, magical being, about this time period that we are in collectively right now. I mean, you know, I know we're recording this in mid-June. So, you know, for those listening in the future, it's been three months of quarantine from coronavirus. We're entering the third week of protests for Black Lives Matter. You know, the card that comes to me, in my mind, it's very obvious, but I'm like, this feels like a tower moment. Thank you. I'm going to take tower is going to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are there other messages that have come through for you about this time, whether via tarot or just your general magical way of looking at the world? I tend to find that it's difficult to do readings about social situations because mm. a certain extent of, of you want to read it the way you want to read it. My friend watches YouTube tarot and psychic reading videos, mm-hmm. and it does seem like the political stuff. It ends up being from that person's point of view, mm. you know, to some extent. And I'm hoping they're all right because usually they're anti what I'm anti. Yes. I'm pro and I'm pro. <laughs> but yeah. now and now I'll do a reading not from my own point of view, but just see what I see, you know. Mm-hmm. And other people do readings too. But it's hard to know. I, the election, the 2016 election, a whole bunch of us did readings. And it just seemed like whatever the cards were, those of us who wanted Hillary to win predicted Hillary. Mm-hmm. And others, you may want Trump to win predicted Trump. And afterwards, we looked at the readings, you could see how it could have been what we said, but you could say it was also wish fulfillment. You know, this mm-hmm. is what we wanted it to say, mm-hmm. but we ignored other possibilities. So I tend to veer away from doing that. But we have been doing readings of guidance to see. I don't see, to me, it's not a clear statement. Mm-hmm. Right now, so much is up in the air. Yeah. No. Has the pandemic subsided or will it come roaring back? Mm-hmm. And if so, what the hell do we do about it? Because mm-hmm. we can't be in lockdown forever, but that's the only thing that seems to work, you know? Yeah. The election is so up in the air. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying, you know, all the unrest, you know? If Trump thinks he's going to lose, what will he do? Because mm-hmm. he feels like he'll do anything. Mm-hmm. And that's very frightening and on and on and on like that, you know? Yes, of course. So sometimes we'll do readings. But I never feel it's definitive. I never feel it's like, yes, this is where it's going. It's so refreshing to hear you say that because I think 
a lot of people, they go to astrologers or tarot readers or mm. mediums and, yeah. and think they have all the answers. Yeah. And the more I speak with experts like yourself, the more I realize the really good ones are the ones who confess, like, nothing is necessarily written. We are co-writing reality all the time with spirit. We don't have all the answers yet. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to how you're thinking about magic and spirituality today. Hmm. Gosh. <laughs> you called yourself in the interview in the Beatrix Gates, quote, a radical goddess loving Jew. And then you say, or sometimes you simply describe your religion as, quote, heresy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happened because a friend of mine was in the hospital for something. And there was a form asking her religion, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's actually a minister. She's an interfaith minister. For a while, she had her own church, but she's given that up. But so she could have written down all kinds of stuff. She wrote down Druidic, <laughs> which is wonderful. Um, Love so it. I thought, well, what would I write? And I immediately thought heresy is my religion. Because mm -hmm. I'm interested in all religious traditions, but never from what you would call the orthodox or the faith part, but always from the radical, mm -hmm. secret, rebellious part. Yes. The part that goes deeper. I'm heretical in everything, you know. I'm always I'm against tarot. What do you mean by that, Rachel? Well, those people who think it has to be this occult correspondence thing. Mm -hmm. I want to be clear. I'm very, I have tremendous respect for those people. They have done so much further than almost anyone else in dealing with tarot on a spiritual basis. But sometimes, and this is often like not the real practitioners, but people kind of follow it a bit, is they get into this orthodox kind of thing. Such as tarot has to mean such and such. Mm -hmm. This card has to be that, nothing else. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Yeah. And I just always feel it's all about experimentation. So that's certainly what I mean by heresy. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by heretical traditions, the ways in which people have rebelled against the official line on things. Oh, I love that. And this might be too personal of a question, so let me know if I'm overstepping. Do you have... A relationship with spirit or with the goddess or whatever terms that you choose that feels, I don't know, like a religious or a faithful practice? How about if I say Hermes is my brother? <laughs> I refer to God Hermes as my brother. So that's a clue. <laughs> yes. Okay. Got but it. Also, Loud and clear. I've initiated the priestess of Isis. Mm -hmm. I have an altar to Isis. I have several altars in the house. Like every room pretty much has an altar. <laughs> mm, love um, it. My kind of woman. I do rituals. I do magic. You know, things like that. I found that I shouldn't talk about it much. Because mm. sometimes I'll do something that kind of works on a very practical, real world level. But if I talk about it, it's in danger of going away. Mm. And it's not big. It's not like gigantic things. I, I think of myself as a hedge witch, which is a term for an ordinary, yes. low-level practitioner. To me, it's all about personal connection, too. One time I was told about a conference, the theme of the goddess Athena, mm -hmm. her mythology and art and things like this. And my immediate response was totally spontaneous. Was, oh, I'd love to go to that. Athena is a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Oh, fabulous. So there's that kind of connection I have, particularly with the Greek figures, you know? Mm -hmm. Persephone is my hero and Demeter is my hero. Here's yeah. how I begin my day dressing. Well, okay, what day is it? It's Sunday. That's Apollo, or simply sun gods and goddesses. So mm -hmm. I choose a necklace that's in reference to the sun. Then I figure, okay, what clothes will go with this necklace? 
Oh, I love it, Rachel. <laughs> I love it. So magic is very much a part of my life. And people now would then say to me, well, how can I learn magic? And so I say the first rule is pay attention. Because I think if you start to pay attention, you discover how magical the world is. And things start happening for you. I'm writing notes for a possible book about my life and magic. Mm. And I'm going to London next year to speak about that in this Magical Women's Conference. Yeah. Which is postponed from this year because of the plague. So I'm, yeah. I'm really wondering, like, am I special? Are the things that happen to me, they are amazing. But they're more amazing than things that happen to other people. It's just I pay attention. Mm-hmm. I notice them. Yes. To me, magic is very much experiential. Mm-hmm. To a lot of people, it's very theoretical. Beautifully said. Yeah. So that's kind of where it is in my life. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on time, but I just want to say that I think so much of your great magic workings are through your writing. And I'm, again, so grateful for you. I'm just so grateful you exist. I'm so grateful (laughs) your work exists, Rachel. Is there anything that you'd like to share with listeners in terms of either where they can find more about you or, you know, is there anything you're working on that you want to plug or share with us? Go to my website, rachelpollock.com, which is Mm -hmm. really in big need of an update, but I found someone to work on it with me. I have a blog. It's more abundant for kind of the same reasons of technology changing and not up to date, but hope to get back to that. And then if they follow my Facebook page, I put a lot of stuff on Facebook about what I'm doing, my observations about magic and things that interest me and pictures I take while walking and stuff like that. And then there's my books, you know, not all in print, but no number are. Thank you for promoting the Breaching Skates. I'd love for people to take a look at that. I think I'm, I'm quite proud of that book and the stuff that's in it, I think is that's some valuable things. So, and that was published by PM Press. It's, it's usually found on Amazon, you know, other places. And just, you know, to look and see if they want to read my books, what books, Seventy Degrees of Wisdom, obviously, Tarot Wisdom, uh, which is the book I call Everything I Learned in the 30 Years of Seventy Degrees of Wisdom. Mm. So those are my two favorite books. And then a, a book I did after that called The New Tarot Handbook, which is my attempt to do like an Eden Gray kind of book, mm-hmm. which is to say a book that's very accessible. And very much a beginner's book, but also has deeper levels, I hope. Yes. And I really made a point in that book to not just dumb down earlier stuff, but to find new things to say I never thought of before. And in that process, I found amazing things in the writer's act that I'd never noticed before, mm. which is the way the tree of life appears disguised in a lot of the minor arcana cards. Mm. People's bodies and positions of things. It's That's really important, fabulous. you know, just to look around at my stuff, you know, and see what they think would appeal to them. Well, there's certainly a lot of it, and it is just packed with treasure. I want to ask you, have you read Unquenchable Fire and Temporary Agency, those two books of mine? So I have Unquenchable Fire. I tracked it down, and I have yet to read it. I think you'd like it a lot. Okay. What was the second one you mentioned? And Temporary Agency follows it. It's not a sequel, but it's set in the same world. Okay. Um, I think those two books would be very meaningful to you from the kind of things my, my work you've been interested in. Other listeners might be interested in those books. Yes. I, I, I sometimes call Uncrunchable Fire sort of all out Rachel or, you know, <laughs> Rachel 100 proof. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's nothing held back and kind of very strange, I very, I think, magical. It's, you know, it won an award. It won this big science fiction award. How fabulous. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sure it was well-deserved. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Now, Rachel, I could talk to you for a thousand more hours, oh, but yeah. I know you have many other things to do. Well, Thank yeah. you <laughs> so much for your time and for your work. You are just gold. You are absolute gold. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. I first, I first you said you were old. And I, yeah, that's true. I'm old. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be 75 in August. I cannot believe this. Oh, my How is goodness. this possible? You know, it's like. Well, congratulations. That's quite a milestone. I know. I'm kind of excited by it, you know. Are you going to mark it in any specific way that you're thinking of? Well, I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do. Yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, I hope it is filled to the brim with all the magic and majesty that you deserve, Rachel. Oh, thank you, sweetie. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much again for being on the Witch Wave, and thank you for your time. Oh, I'm so absolutely delighted. To Maybe we could do it again sometime. I had a great time. You got it. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Rachel Pollock for her transcendent wisdom and transformational words. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witch Wave merch at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at witchwavepod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available pretty much everywhere now. And if you want more Witch Wave or you would just like to support the show and get those mini-sodes throughout the summer break, please do join us on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash witchwave. Have a spectacular summer, everyone. And thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave. <laughs>